you're listening to Rights Up Pops, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I am Monica Rangulaj, and in today's episode, we are delighted to have Gori Pillai, our previous managing editor and now assistant professor of law at the National Law School of India University with us. We will be talking to her about the latest Indian Supreme Court decision on abortion rights. Welcome back, Gori. Thank you for having me, Monica. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, so let's get right into it. Very recently, the Supreme Court of India in the X versus NCT case recognized an entitlement to abortion as a constitutionally protected reproductive right. Can you tell us briefly what the case is about? So before we get into the facts and the holding of the case, it would be helpful for us to understand what the legislative framework is on abortion in India. So there are two main legislations governing abortion. The first is the Indian Penal Code, which criminalizes abortion, except in cases where it is necessary to save the life of the pregnant woman. And the second is the Medical Termination of Pregnancy Act, which exists as an exception to the criminal law. And under the MTPA, which was recently amended in 2021, there are a series of conditions under which women can access abortions. These conditions have to be uh, sanctified by doctors. So women can access abortion under these conditions up to 20 weeks. And what the amendment does is that for certain, what it calls vulnerable categories of women, they're allowed to access abortions between 20 and 24 weeks. And this case is about one of those vulnerable categories. So rule 3B of the MTP rule says that if you are, if you experience a change in marital status, and then in brackets it says either widowhood or divorce, then you fall within this vulnerable category of women and you can access abortions between 20 and 24 weeks if you meet certain conditions. Now, last week, the Supreme Court considered the interpretation of Rule 3B once again because it raised a substantial question of law. And the court held in, in line with its ad interim order that Rule 3B extends to unmarried pregnant women as well. And very quickly, the court based this on three prongs. The first is that the MTPA, the court argued, should be interpreted purposively and the purpose of the legislation is to prevent threat to women's life and health from an unwanted pregnancy. And the court held it does not matter if this threat comes, happens to whether married or unmarried women, as long as there is a change in relationship circumstance, which then threatens their health to carry the pregnancy to term, the abortion will be allowed or ought to be allowed rather. In the second, the court held that social circumstances in India have changed atypical forms of familial relationships, which are outside marriage, for example, live-in relationships, are much more common. And this sort of changing social environment ought to interpret how the court, um, ought to influence, sorry, how the court interprets the legislation. And finally, the court held that the MTPA is a beneficial legislation and it is created for the benefit of pregnant women and therefore it should be interpreted broadly in line with their interests. So it seems to me that what you're saying is that the court anchored its ruling on the prohibition of gender-based stereotypes and stereotypes about women and married life. Can you explain a bit more the court's reasoning? 
So one of the most important parts of the court's reasoning, along with the others that I mentioned uh, earlier, is that it hits back against the artificial distinction within the law between married and unmarried women. And the court says, and as you rightfully point out, that restricting abortions beyond 20 weeks to married women alone is based on the unconstitutional stereotype that sexuality is confined to the institution of marriage, which the court sees as both factually incorrect and constitutionally unsustainable. And therefore, the court holds that the law ought not make that distinction between uh, married and unmarried women. And if Rule 3B were to make that distinction or were to be read in a way like the Delhi High Court did, read literally to make that distinction, then Rule 3B would be unconstitutional. So the court says another option would be to read Rule 3B expansively to allow unmarried women to claim the benefit of Rule 3B, in which case you can preserve the constitutionality of Rule 3B. So taking into account concerns of separation of powers and the presumption of constitutionality of legislation, the court held, the court opted rather to go with an interpretation of Rule 3B that aligns with the constitutional right to equality. In which legal entitlements did the court base this decision and the reasoning that you are explaining? So the, the very obvious one to hit back against the distinction between um, married and unmarried women is the right to equality under Article 14 of our constitution, of the Indian constitution. The other rights that the court develops in a fair amount of detail is the right to decisional autonomy, which comes from Article 21 of our constitution, which guarantees to women the right to life and personal liberty. So decision autonomy, the court argues, would allow women to make intimate decisions um, about matters, including reproduction. And this would extend to a decision not just to have an abortion, but also to not have an abortion. So it covers both sides of the decision. The court also very importantly talked about the right to bodily integrity. The court recognized the burdens or the heavy physical responsibility placed by an unwanted pregnancy on pregnant women, and the court held that um, requiring a woman to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term would infringe their bodily integrity. And finally, the court used the idea or the constitutional value of dignity to say that dignity requires that women should ought not be treated as means to an end, and they should be respected as self-governing individuals, and therefore a corollary of protecting the constitutional value of dignity is allowing women abortions. You say that is quite evident that the right to equality was used uh, for this reasoning. However, uh, do, do, is this something novel that the court is doing? Has the court before based the rights uh, to abortion on under the right to equality? Uh, thanks for that question, Monica. Um, it is quite novel uh, because typically within India's uh, reproductive rights jurisprudence, we see a quite a consistent absence of the right to equality or the right to non-discrimination. So the fact that the court used explicitly used the right to equality here to protest against the distinction between married and unmarried women within the MTP rules is definitely a significant jurisprudential step forward. I would say that the right to equality beyond the sort of immediate question of married and unmarried women and that distinction, the right to equality doesn't 
come within the court's broader constitutional values that the court lists as underlying the right to abortion. So maybe that is another um, place for the court to go to consider what the right to equality and non-discrimination mean more generally for women's right to an abortion beyond the specific question of whether unmarried women can access an abortion or not. The other important part of the decision that you're pointing out is about how the court anchored its decision on the right to women to make decisions about their bodies. And I think that that is quite interesting. As, as you uh, stated before, the regime places a lot of emphasis on the, on the doctor's decision or assessment. So what did the court say about this? Is the court talk, uh, touch on this tension between the right of, of women to make the decision and, and how the doctor can or not make it for the women? No, the court actually did not. And this is sort of one of the contradictions that comes out from the decision. So the court uses very strong rights language to ground the woman's right to an abortion. And in certain places, it goes so far to say that the woman ought to be the sole decision maker or the ultimate decision maker in the abortion decision. If we were to take that to its logical conclusion, then that would mean that the MTPA, which vests the decision ultimately in doctors, would be bad law, would be unconstitutional. So the court did not really um, tease out the implications of you know, seeing women as ultimate decision makers, but simply stopped at re recognizing that they ought to be ultimate decision makers. It is important to just say that the constitutionality of the role of medical professionals was not an issue before the court. The, what was an issue was simply the interpretation of Rule 3B. So um, it may not be reasonable to expect the court to go so far to strike down the medical professional requirement. But um, an implication of the court's holding is certainly that we need to rethink who the MTPA sees as the decision maker. The decision sounds quite groundbreaking and, and expansive. How do you assess it? Is this a good decision for women's reproductive rights or does it have challenges? Um, I would say that I'm very optimistic, but I'm cautiously optimistic because I think that, again, going beyond that question about married and unmarried women, the court's decision it lays the ground rather for challenges to several issues that have been plaguing India's abortion law for a really long time. But the criminal prohibition on abortion continues to remain in place. So even if the language used by the court to expansively interpret the MTPA, to see the woman as the ultimate decision maker, even though the language is really progressive, I wonder how far the language can take a woman actually claiming an abortion on the ground because the criminal law exists and continues to remain in place, which will continue to affect how the MTPA is interpreted. Thank you so much, uh, Gori, for talking to us today. Thank you, Monica. This was a great conversation. Rights Up Pop is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Megan Campbell. This episode was co-produced by Monica Rangulaja, edited by Sophie Smith and hosted by Monica Rangulaja. Music for this series is by Rosemary Alman. Show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Duby. Thanks to our production team members, Sandra Fredman, Megan Campbell, Natasha Holcroft-Ean, and Sophie Smith, 
for their valuable feedback in putting together this episode. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.